All right. Well, I am using my phone to make a recording, and I've never done this before, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll just set that there, and it can do what it wants to do for the next hour. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and teach a class, and we'll see if... Uh, do I even need a microphone? Probably not. Can you hear me okay? All right. <laughs> well, maybe if Maria can turn on the speakers, then we can at least have those. But either way, we are in uh, Proverbs 22 this morning. Walked into the uh, auditorium and the computer was off and it will not turn on. You know, and so you like that better? All right. All right, Proverbs 22. This will be our last class, by the way, for a couple of weeks. So I uh, want to go ahead and teach something today. <laughs> Appreciate you making the drive down. Um, so, yes, we have class today, but not next week on the 21st or the week after that on the 28th. Both of those Wednesdays, uh, the morning schedule is canceled, and we'll have guest speakers in the evening. Robert Jewell is teaching in the evening of the 21st, and Cornelius uh, Williams is teaching on the evening of the 28th. So, all right. Well, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. In preparation for the study of the Word of God, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your Word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding, to uh, to bless our time in your truth. And we have no no camera, no recording, um, but we just leave it with you. We thank you for being faithful. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs 22, and I failed to uh, bring my paper notes this morning, but that's all right. We'll just follow the slideshow and see where it takes us. So we've been working our way through. We had uh, the sluggard that we looked at in verse 13. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. We then dealt with the adulteress. Um, in verse 14, the mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it, recognizing that fornication is not simply just a physical activity, but it is a soul, spirit, body activity. It defiles both the flesh and the spirit, and it enslaves the soul with a significant mastery. And so to be under a curse is, uh, is a hopeless situation. To be in a pit, in a deep pit, you've fallen into it, and who's going to get you out? Uh, it's not something you can get out yourself. And uh, all of these sexual warnings that we have in the book of Proverbs, uh, they keep saying the same thing over and over, and over again in multiple different ways. Why do we have the... Uh, the doctrine, why is it taught in chapter 2 and again in chapter 5 and again in chapter 6 and again in chapter 7 and again in chapter 9? Enough already. Haven't you made the point? And uh, God, of course, in his wisdom says, no, I'm going to keep making the point. I'm going to keep making it again and again and again. And so you're going to get it five times in your childhood and then you're going to get it two more times in uh, chapters 10 through 24. It's going to show up again in chapter 22. It's going to show up again in chapter 23. 
And so we'll be dealing with that when we get into that chapter. All right. The last thing we deal with here in terms of child raising, and it's not child raising, it's adult raising. Okay? It's adult raising. You see it in verse 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And I understand the expression, and I've used it myself. We all do. Uh, we talk about child raising. The, the truth is we're adult raising. We want, hopefully, uh, as we raise these young people, that they will go from childhood to adolescence to adults, and then they'll be prepared to enter the world on an adult basis. And uh, raising adult, raising any adult, requires the hard discipline uh, from the Lord. Re- requires hard discipline from parents, from God, from the Scriptures. But raising adults requires the hard discipline of Adamic, spiritually dead children. Now, I'm going to break this down into two halves, really. And, and I, so I split the sentence up with, with a bunch of verses in the middle and then a bunch of verses at the end. And then I'm going to read a thing from Bruce Waltke. Um, but I think it's important that we recognize the fall... The fall does a lot of damage, right? The fall of Adam and Eve, uh, leaving humanity in a position of sin, uh, leaving us in need of a Savior, leading us as fallen uh, beings in a fallen world. So the fall, I don't want to minimize the fall. We want to understand it appropriately. We want to understand it um, as it applies. I think I just saw a car pull up. Well, it could be Susie. Okay. Yeah, we're just watching, and I don't know if we have cameras today. That's another thing we don't probably have. <laughs> so everything's going wrong. That's all right. God's in charge. The um, so the fall has, of course, left all of humanity in sin, and we're all spiritually dead. We all oh, there they go. Cars leaving. <laughs> they probably just dropped off a pipe bomb or something. We'll we'll find out in a minute. <laughs> Now, when it comes to child raising, though, when it comes to parents and children, what I think we're going to discover, and, and as we walk way, our way through this, I think you'll agree with my conclusion on this. I think that child raising would have been still a challenge even without the fall. Okay, Had Adam and Eve not become sinners, still giving birth to Cain and Abel. Or talk about um, Mary and Joseph in raising sinless Jesus. Okay, There's another illustration for you. Because he was born without sin. He was, he was the perfect child, literally. Okay? Um, I realize some of us think we raised the perfect child. But no, it's Mary and Joseph raised Jesus as the perfect child. And they still... What is the, the application of Proverbs 22.15 for Mary and Joseph? Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Was that true for sinless baby Jesus? Was that true for sinless toddler Jesus? Was that true for sinless child Jesus? Sinless adolescent Jesus? Okay, When he was 12 and in the temple, um, had they already removed the foolishness from him or was there still some that was yet to be removed? That's and, I'm, and right now I'm just going to leave it out there as an open question until we work our way through these passages. And then hopefully at the end of the hour we can we can make the decision. And we may not agree. We may just say, um, no, Jesus had no foolishness whatsoever. None. That he was the exception to the rule. Then I want to search the scriptures and say, okay, then was he not a child? Okay. If he was not a child, then he didn't identify with me. 
because I was a child? Okay, was he a young person? Was he an adult? You know, at what point do we say, okay, now he identifies with us? You understand why I think it's a bigger issue than maybe some people don't give it credit for. They don't think it through. And we'll, we'll deal with that. But we'll start with, the, first of all, with the, the hard discipline. That's the easy part. Okay? That's the easy part. So as we start with hard discipline, let me get this situated again. And make sure we go to Proverbs. Nope. All right. Because it's not just parents with children. It's God with us. <laughs> okay? It's, uh, the, the discipline is necessary for everybody. Who is there that's without discipline? Well, that's the child of Satan that's uh, serving this fallen world. All right. Here's a principle. It's a fundamental principle. Whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. Even as a father corrects or reproves uh, the son in whom he delights. And so this is a principle. And it's a principle that says God does this. God deals with us as with sons. That when you're a believer, when you're growing in the word of God, then God the Father is going to deal with you on a parental basis. Which means he's going to be shaping you, he's going to be correcting you, he's going to be applying discipline to your life. So that when you walk in wisdom, when you walk in wisdom, that God's going to be with you uh, every step of the way. All right, Whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. So this is true for all of us on an adult basis. And then we're going to see that it's that the scriptures insist that we train up our children in the same pattern. Okay? Because children have an extra measure of foolishness that hasn't been beaten out of them yet <laughs> related to the process. Okay? All right. So that's the principle. And it starts there. That God deals with all of us this way on a parental basis. Then we get to uh, Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. That the contrast between discipline and the withholding of discipline is a love-hate contrast. That when you, when you choose to not discipline your child, that is a hatred. That is a hatred. Okay? That if you truly loved your child, in other words, you would be an imitator of God the Father who truly loves us. That if you truly loved your child, you would not withhold the rod. You're withholding a good thing when you withhold the rod. Remember, God said not one good thing does he withhold from those that, that love him or those that he loves. Okay, Not one good thing does he withhold. And so the rod is a good thing. Discipline is a good thing because of what it produces, because of what, how God designed it. So when you withhold the rod, you hate your son. If you love him, you're going to discipline him diligently. And you're going to be biblical about how you're doing it. You're going to be prayerful about how you're doing it. You're going to be doing it in love. It's not uh, out of uh, hatred or not out of anger, not out of anything carnal. It's got to be in fellowship and out of the... the uh, duty that we have as parents in serving the Lord. Alright, so that's Proverbs 13.24. And again, we, we would ask ourselves, now is this true universally? 
Is this true for believers and unbelievers alike? Could, could an unbeliever apply parental discipline and hold children to a standard? And is there a benefit to that? There is a benefit to that. There's a secular benefit to that. Um, but of course, for the believer, there's a secular benefit and a spiritual benefit to applying the uh, laws of divine establishment biblically. All right, so now we go to Proverbs 19.18. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. All right, and I laugh every time I read this, but, you know, there's going to be moments that you're going to start to wonder, well, this is never going to work, and perhaps. <laughs> All right, you don't desire his death. And realize in the Old Testament, this was the option. Okay, in the Old Testament, the hopeless, uh, unrepentant rebel... Parents would take that child to the city elders in the gates and say, we've been disciplining him. We've been grounding him in the word of God. He insists on defying the law, defying our parental authority, defying, which is not just parental authority, but it's the, the authority of the clan and the tribe and the nation related to their, their place as the covenant nation of Israel. And the procedure was there that the, the city elders at the gate, they would provide the assistance, and that was the the execution of that rebel, okay? And, and sometimes that boggles our minds and sometimes we struggle to think that would, would I ever take my child to the, to the city gates and, and turn him over for that kind of uh, procedure? You know, that's not our culture. That's not our uh, American practice. That was theirs, okay? And so when this says, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death, that verse comes in the context where Mosaic law does provide for corporal punishment and capital punishment in the uh, discipline of the next generation. Okay, So if you get nothing else out of it at all, understand that if capital punishment is on the menu, if it is within the range of your options, it's a serious deal. It is a serious deal that God holds parents to in raising up their children so that you're raising up God-fearers and you're not raising up Satan-worshippers in, uh, in the next generation. All right, 22.15. Foolishness, this is where we are today. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And so, as with all these other passages, we ask ourselves, is this only because of sin? Is this only because of the fall, Adam and Eve, and the nature of fallen humanity? Or is this the created design? And what did God build into unfallen humanity? Say, um, you know, the fact that, that we procreate, the fact that we have babies, that we don't give birth to adults. We give birth to infants. We give birth to newborns. And then those, those infants... They have to learn. They have to grow. They have to. They have. They're, they're. They're not stupid, but they're ignorant. Okay. They don't know anything except what you teach them and what they start to learn in their humanity, and that includes this foolishness, and it has to be removed. Do not hold back. This is Proverbs twenty-three, verses thirteen and fourteen. So this gets now into the next section that I'm going to introduce here at the end of this hour: um, the thirty sayings of the wise. But do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with a rod and rescue his soul from shale. 
The fact is, is that in training up these children in their spiritual development, great harm is done if you don't. Rescuing his soul from Sheol. It's, it, yes, it's behavior modification, but it's soul training is what you're doing. Soul training. You want to uh, eventually, <laughs> the design is, uh, as, as human beings learn and grow this way, is that uh, it's not an artificial uh, uh, procedure whereby behavior is forced only to avoid the, the consequences. It's actually shaping the soul. So that obedience becomes a soul obedience. It comes from the heart. It comes from the soul of a child that's not terrified of the, the parents that are bigger and stronger than them, but that actually has a fear of the Lord that loves the God who saved them, that loves the God who gave them those loving parents. Thank God for the loving parents God gave us in, uh, in these applications. <laughs> in fact, just this morning, Robbie Dean, Pastor Robbie Dean from West Houston Bible Church, he sent me a YouTube video, uh, and I forget now, is a Rory and something, it's a country music duo. She's dead now. She's with the Lord, I learned. But um, anyway, they sang a song about the best leather in the world um, is basically uh, the Bible and the belt is what it's about. Right? Have you heard the song? You know what I'm talking about? So, yeah, so the, the leather-bound Bible or the leather-bound belt, and we need them both. And uh, we, we need more Bibles and more belts to train up the next generation, or the children are a mess. And, and, and it's kind of the, the singers are reflecting upon their childhood and how, how much they, they respect their fathers, who, uh, their mothers who read the Bible to them, and the fathers who administered the belt back behind the woodshed. And uh, anyway, I just heard the song for the first time this morning, and I want to go back and listen to it again. But this is the uh, the principle that we're dealing with here. I don't know how Robbie knew I was going to need that this morning as an illustration, but he uh, I'll have to thank him for that. Proverbs uh, 29, verses 15 and 17. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. And of course, the child doesn't want discipline. And so if he just gets everything he wants and has no structure, no discipline in his life, then this is going to be the outcome. Verse 17, correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul because of this is the, the benefit, the outcome of this correction while the child is still young. We can appreciate that. Again, as I look at all these things, I see that this is the nature of what God designed for humanity and how we learn. And how we learn, there is a father-son dynamic for how we learn. And so while we are children, and same thing, mother-daughter, father-son, parent-child dynamic. And so we're not, Adam and Eve were the only two humans that were created as an adult male and an adult female. They're the only humans that never had a childhood. But everybody else since then was birthed went through the childhood process that experienced the begetter and the begotten dynamic. And, and this is the pattern that we have. This is what we do in raising up the next generation. And then hopefully the things we learn as begotten ones will uh, then equip us to be the begetters when uh, in our generation then we have to bring up the next. All right. Hebrews 12, very well known, and we dealt with this in our Hebrew series. 
You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. So this this pattern that we have, yes, it's a pattern for human parenting, but it's how God deals with all of us. God deals with all of us. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. This is the blessing that we have of sonship, and thank God we're believers, that we're saved, that we are sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, He came to his own, his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who are called by his name. And so we get to become sons of God. I don't know that uh, an Old Testament believer could make that claim. An Old Testament believer could get saved. An Old Testament believer would have eternal life. His human spirit would be made alive. Uh, but he would not receive the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit. He would not be baptized into union with Jesus Christ. And I don't believe that he would have a sonship dynamic like we have. Our sonship dynamic is because we're in Christ. I believe Old Testament saints were still sons of David, sons of Abraham, sons of you know whatever nation, whatever tribe, whatever their, their uh, identity was as Old Testament believers. I'm still searching though. And if I can find sonship uh, on a regenerate basis, then uh, in the Old Testament, I'll be happy to add that to my list. All right. So we, we go through all of the verses that speak about the hard discipline that's necessary in order to raise adults. If you don't apply that hard discipline, then you're not going to raise adults. You're going to raise uh, biologically uh, aged children. <laughs> okay. And and they might be, you know, 20, 30, 40 years old, but they're still children because they weren't disciplined. They're still spiritually, emotionally, um, the undisciplined children that they are. And the, and the temper tantrum of a, of a, of a 40-year-old child is, is painful to watch. But we see it in the news all the time. And we see these hoodlums, uh, you know, roaming the streets in packs because they weren't disciplined. And so instead of raising adults, they're raising, they're not raising the, the children that, that result. All right. Now, add to all of that the components involved with the fall and realize that on top of everything else, the foolishness that just comes as a result of childhood immaturity comes the darkness that's associated with sin, that's associated with our position in Adam. The fact is, is that we are all adamically, spiritually dead. And so this principle becomes important. And, and you can demonstrate this again and again and again. Genesis 8.21. This is after the flood, and the Lord smelled the soothing aroma um, and, of course, they, they survive the flood, they get off, and the reason why they took extra animals uh, of the clean birds and the clean animals is that they were going to do sacrifices. Many of the animals they put on the ark weren't to repopulate the animal kingdom after the flood. They, God preserved them, Noah preserved them through the flood so that on their first day out of the ark, he could sacrifice them to, uh, to God as an as a, uh, animal sacrifice of worship. And so when the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on, a, on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. 
And so this is a very clear testimony that part of the fall, part of the consequences of the Adamic nature is such that even from childhood, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. We're not born with a clean slate. Uh, the innocence of childhood does not come with a purity that is to be admired. It comes with a bent, a, an Adamic bent to sin. That every child has a sin nature. That's not something you get uh, in your teenage years. You don't go through puberty and, and receive a sin nature. You have a sin nature from your birth. And we, uh, we, we accept that for what it is. <clears throat> Job 14.4 who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the numbers of his months is with you. His limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Um, this is the issue with humanity. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Okay? So, there you go. Welcome to the human race. <laughs> okay? Yeah, raise your hand if your mom was a woman. You're human, right? This is, this is true. This is true for all of Adamic humanity. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. You also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. So, welcome to humanity. You're in the image of God and accountable to your creator. And so, who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. We're all born unclean. We're all born in Adam. And we can't fix it ourselves. Only God can. Uh, Job 25.4 How then can a man be just with God? How can he be clean who is born of a woman? And this is, uh, this is the fallen angels that are talking. Uh, Bildad is echoing the satanic uh, message. Bildad the Shuhite answered, Dominion and awe belong to him who establishes peace in his heights. Is there any number to his troops? And upon whom does his light not rise? How then can a man be just with God? How can he be clean who is born of a woman? Well, the answer is, whoever is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. All right? And uh, the only way I can be clean is when the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and son of man, that worm. And this taunting language clearly reflects, we know that Zophar, Bildad, Elihu, all these guys were listening to these fallen angels in the, in the whispering that they would receive during the night. So they could come and taunt Job with this filth, this garbage. All right. Psalm 51.5. This is David confessing his adultery with Bathsheba. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. It's the lost estate of this fallen world. He's not saying that, you know, Jesse and Mrs. Jesse were, you know, canoodling before marriage or whatever. He's not saying that they were living in sin. And, and it, David was the, the seventh son of a husband and wife that were, you know, godly before the Lord. Jesse was a tremendous hero, spiritual man of faith. Um, but the fact is, believers, godly believers, spiritually mature believers, um, when they procreate, the sins that the, the, the children that are birthed are sinners. It's the way it works. 
Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Anyway, that's Psalm 51. Isaiah 48. You have not heard, this is 48.8 in Isaiah. You have not heard, you have not known, even from long ago, your ear has not been opened, because I knew that you would deal very treacherously, and you have been called a rebel from birth. <laughs> That's true. Uh, that's why every human being on the planet needs a savior. And why, if you can get them when they're young, that's the best opportunity of all. Child evangelism and show them as their toddler. Show them as young children that they're sinners. And that uh, a disobedient child gets spanked by their parents, but a sinner gets spanked by his heavenly father. And he needs a savior. So draw that analogy. Draw, you know, show from the earthly what the spiritual reality is. All right, now I wanted to share some things that Walkie wrote. If I have, uh, I did. I made that clickable. I think I made that clickable. Click. There it is. Huh. Yeah, I just liked this quote. Um, so this is Bruce Walkie in his uh, commentary on Proverbs. I forget now the. Uh, the New International Commentary of the Old Testament, or NICOT, is the abbreviation by Bruce Waltke. All right. And so this is what he has to say about Proverbs 22.15. To protect youth against the Lord's cursing of casting him into the whore's deep pit, the educator must severely discipline youth to drive his innate folly from him. Notice innate. That means born with. That means intrinsic to his nature. The synthetic parallels present the reason what Wybray describes as the doctrine of original folly. <laughs> and Wybray was another author. I don't, I don't like a lot of his stuff. I'm not big on Wybray. But I like this phrase. I like this expression, original folly. Okay, Because it goes well with original sin. It goes well with um, you know, the Adamic condition is one thing, but the child condition is something else. You're combining the two now. Original sin and original folly. Anyway, the rod is the means of effective discipline. Folly, not purity, is bound up. Folly, not purity, is bound up in the heart of a youth. The rod, that's the rod of discipline, will remove it far from him. Youth's intractable insolence and his moral propensity for laziness, lust, and greed is tightly bound up. I don't understand why that's doing that. All right. Youth's intractable insolence and his immoral propensity for laziness, lust, and greed is tightly bound up with his very constitution. But the father's disciplining rod breaks folly's hold and frees him. Since folly incurs the Lord's curse, this proverb seeks to protect the youth from eternal death by the father's relatively light sting. Goes on, uh, Proverbs 20, verse 30, calls for bruising wounds to scour defiled humanity. Generally, 22.15 applies that truth to depraved youth particularly. Bodily harm without heals the mortal rot within. I like that. The moral rot within. Whereas most Proverbs call for the youth to give an attentive ear, moral education also calls for physical punishment along with sharp reproof for wrongdoing. And then my favorite quote in the whole paragraph, what I colored green here, the father must not underestimate the difficulty of his task, for he does battle with an innate recalcitrance and perversity. He must both tear down and build up to eradicate and implant. 
I just appreciated it. I thought that was right on the mark. The English proverb, spare the rod and spoil the child, was probably derived from the Proverbs, coming from this uh, link here. Then, um, one more footnote I liked. Yes. There, um, there was an Egyptian counterpart, almost as old as Proverbs. I don't think it goes back to Solomon's time, to 1000 BC, but I think it goes back to maybe the 5th or 6th century BC. But an Egyptian counterpart, boys have ears on their backsides. <laughs> Me, meaning the only thing that they're going to listen to is when you're administering that, that sharp pain to the... Anyway, that's how the Egyptians put it in the, in the first millennium B.C. Boys have ears on their backsides. And then Delich, um, from Kyle and Delich fame, uh, he cites Meander. You, now, I'm not big on Menander. Menander was a, was a pagan Greek poet, Greek philosopher, um, and Menander had a lot of things none of us would agree with. But... I think this one was interesting because he says, he who is not flogged is not educated. And that gets quoted a lot. That gets quoted a lot by biblical commentators and other secular philosophers and whatnot. Meaning that the flogging, the, the corporal discipline of a young person is essential. And if it's missing, then you can't make the claim that you are educating that young person. Okay? And even a pagan philosopher, poet, comedian, playwright, however you want to describe Menander. Um, I think Paul even quotes Menander in the book of Acts. I've got I to look that up. Anyway, yeah, he who is not flogged is not educated. And that's uh, an interesting secular quote. Anyway, good material there. Well, let's get back. Let's give you a preview of where we're going to be when we come back. So point four in the outline. At most of this chapter, we wrapped up under main point three, uh, and we then just ran the subpoints A through N to give the summary. Remember, uh, these verses from verse one to verse 16 is like a miniature book of Proverbs, that everything that we've looked at in these verses is something we've dealt with previously in, uh, in the book of Proverbs. It serves as a thumbnail for the entire collection. We do, though, get a section break here with verse 17, and many Bibles don't put a pericope heading in there. The New American Standard doesn't. I don't know. I think maybe the, the uh, I know the, the NIV does. The New King James, I don't think, does, or the Old King James. I don't know. You can let me know after class if your Bible has one in there or not. Do you have a publishing blurb in there or not in, uh, in this uh, particular verse? Proverbs 22:17. Nope, I just have a little space. It is bold, so at least marks it as a paragraph heading, but it doesn't give a, a publishing blurb there. The Christian Standard Bible does. Puts words of the wise as a header across the top there. New King James does. Sayings of the wise. Old King James does not. The Lexham English Bible does. Words of the wise. Scriptures do not. Young's literal translation does not. All right. 
English Standard Version does. All right, well, enough of that. If, you're, uh, if you've got another Bible here this morning, you can let me know. All right, there should be a heading there on top of verse 17. The words of the wise begin in 22.17 and then run nearly to the conclusion of chapter 24. They're actually going to stop somewhat uh, short of the end of chapter 24, but they're going to run through 24.22. Then when we get to uh, yes, look at Proverbs 24.23. What do you see? It says, these also are the sayings of the wise. And so we have an introduction for an additional section. There's an additional section that takes us from verse 23 down to verse 34, down to the end of the chapter. Okay, And so we have a section here, and there's 30 of these statements, and we'll, we'll outline them for you. Different people outline them in different ways. But there are 30 statements, because the number 30 is in one of these verses. Not obviously, but some people find it there. <laughs> and so we have a section heading here that I want to introduce this morning, and then we'll, we'll get back to it in a couple of weeks. But it, it begins in 2217, and it runs through 2422. There'll be another section we'll introduce in 2423 that'll take us to the end of chapter 24. And then there's another section we'll introduce when we get to chapter 25. Because in chapter 25, in verse 1, it says, These also are the Proverbs of Solomon which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. So these also are the Proverbs of Solomon. Now, they don't get added to the canon. They don't get added to the Bible until 200 years after Solomon's dead. But Solomon wrote them. Okay, They just don't get canonized. They don't get compiled. They don't get ordered. They don't get structured until, after, until the days of Hezekiah. This is a part of, of Old Testament canonicity that I want to stress. I want to make sure we're not fearful of. It's like the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms and David didn't put them in that order. Okay? They're, they're put into five different books. David didn't put them in that order. Well, who did? How do they get collected after David's lifetime? How do they get canonized? What was the... So, I think what's useful, and, and this is where, you know, when we train Pastor Cliff and Pastor Dan, I, I want to train everybody with this, when we understand inspiration... Inspiration is the work of the Holy Spirit in the, in the uh, human authors that he selects, the, the human authors that will write the original, can, uh, the original scriptures. But then also the Holy Spirit works with the subsequent collators, the subsequent editors, the subsequent um, canonizers, if I can use that word, okay? Um, because these... these uh, Scrolls get updated through the centuries. They get um, they get spelling adjustments. They get um, updated terminology. They get updated city names when when names get uh, when when towns get new names, things of that nature that get updated to the manuscripts until finally then the final canonized edition of Proverbs has the 31 chapters the way we see it today. 
the, the final canonized book of Psalms has 1 through 150 in the order that we have it today. Okay? And all of those processes, same thing with the Pentateuch, same thing with every Old Testament book, went through multiple editors and the doctrine of inspiration has to include the recognition of those of those truths and the role that the priests had, the prophets had, the other scribes had to canonize the text. To put it in law, prophets, and writings as Jesus referenced. So these also are the Proverbs of Solomon which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. Now, um, the Bible Knowledge Commentary has a nice summary of this and I'm just going to read that for you. There it is, summary. The sayings of the wise men. The, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, this is from Dallas Theological Seminary in about the late 70s, I think. Uh, Walbert and Zook are the authors. There's an Old Testament volume and a New Testament volume. It's a two-volume set. I recommend it. This section falls into two parts. The first part is introduced as the sayings of the wise. And the second part is introduced by the statement, these also are the sayings of the wise. <laughs> All right? And so we have these two sections here. In style, this section includes at least 20 instances in which two verses express a complete thought rather than one verse. I mean, we've gotten kind of lazy lately, right? Since chapter 10 all the way till now, we've been, we've been grabbing a single verse and saying, okay, what's the A part? What's the B part? We're seeing the poetry, uh, every verse with two halves. We've seen the dice stitches, okay? That's kind of not a feature here in, this, in these sections, all right? At least 20 instances in which two verses express a complete thought rather than one verse. Also, seven verses have three lines rather than the normal two lines. So instead of an A and a B, we have an A, B, and a C in some of these three-part uh, verses or even four-part verses. Verses that have four lines. My son occurs five times. This, uh, this my son has been pretty absent since chapters 1 through 9. In chapters 1 through 9, we had my son everywhere. My son, listen to the voice of your father. Do not ignore your mother. All these my son exhortations in those first nine chapters, we've kind of been missing those in chapters 10 through 24. Well, we're going to get a few more of them in this section. Five times. Whereas it occurs 15 times in chapters 1 through 9 and only once in uh, 10 through 22. Only once. And, and when we came across it in 1927, it was like a slap to the face. It was like, wow, how did this get in here? Um, and, have, and we'll get two more of them in the later portions of the book. Once in chapter 27 and once in chapter 31. The phrase, a wise son, occurs once in uh, chapters 22 through 24, compared with five times in the section we just finished. Five times in chapters 10 through 22. Many of the sayings are warnings. A lot of warnings coming up. Using the words, do not. It's almost like the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not bear false witness. We get a lot of warnings with thou shalt not or do not in this section. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crushed the afflicted at the gate. Go ahead and dock this here while we're at it. 
So there's a do not in verse 22. There's a do not in verse 24. Do not associate with a man given to anger. Uh, Verse 26, do not be among those who give pledges. So we're going to see a whole lot of do nots in this this section. Interestingly, each of the 30 sayings in in 22.22 through 24.22, each of the 30 sayings includes a reason for the warning. Or another advice, or other advice, and several of the sayings include reasons. Include reasons. So when it says, do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, it goes on to say why. Not just because God said so, or you're a moron if you do. It just it gives a reason. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. Ooh, that's a pretty good reason. <laughs> okay, I get that. And it's interesting because in, in a lot of Proverbs, they're just, they're proverbial, they're short, they're pithy, they're, they preach themselves, they are what they are. Um, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your steps. Okay, I get that. You don't need to expand upon that with additional reasons. We haven't seen a lot of reasons given. But here we have reasons. Uh, the sayings... 2217 through 2434 were written by wise men other than Solomon and were compiled either in his lifetime or later. I believe he kept a full library of all the wise men of all the nations around him. And we have an indication of that in in 1 Kings chapter 5. So when we have this heading, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. These are the ones that Solomon collected. And if he didn't collect it, he didn't think it was wise. <laughs> but if he collected it, he says, okay, this can go in my book. This will go in my collection. And he collected 30 of them in this section and then some additional ones that were collected later. <clears throat> By the way, it's been a while since we've shared this. First Kings 5 and verse, where is it? I'm sorry, First Kings, First Samuel. What am I looking for on Solomon? I'm looking for First Kings five. I thought maybe it's chapter four. There it is, chapter four. That was a chapter off. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men. And it lists some of them here. And we don't really know a lot about these guys. Other than uh, Ethan was the author of Psalm, 80, Psalm 89. And we don't know a lot about some of these other guys. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs. That's a whole lot more than we've got in our book of Proverbs. They weren't all biblical Proverbs, but Solomon spoke them. And also, uh, his songs were 1,005. Only two of them made it into the book of Psalms. But he has 1,003 1, beyond those. I guess we should include Song of Solomon, right? He wrote that one. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop. So he had secular writings as well about trees. And he spoke of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. So just pure genius. And men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So Jerusalem becomes a clearinghouse. It becomes a center. And 
in comparing his wisdom to all these other men, Ethan and Heman and Calcol and Darda and everybody else, clearly he was a collector of wisdom. So it shouldn't surprise us then when Solomon's own collection of the words of the wise, if Solomon thought they were biblical, and the Holy Spirit put them in the canon, then we can learn from them, <laughs> right? The fact that the Holy Spirit puts them in the canon means um, it's for our edification. Because all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Now, you might read some liberals, and they're going to discredit Solomon for all of this, and they're going to say, the Jews just ripped off Egyptian wisdom. Many scholars have maintained that these wise men borrowed from the Egyptian work the instruction of Amen, Amenhotep, right? Or Amen M. Opie. I'm just going to call him Amen Opie, okay? I just like Amen Opie. And um, Amen Opie does have 30 sections. Total coincidence, okay? Total coincidence. The sayings in the Egyptian work are much longer than what we have here in Proverbs. The 30 chapters in Amen Opie range in length from 7 to 26 lines, much longer than the 30 sayings in Proverbs. And the date comes later. Anywhere from the 10th to the 6th century, most likely between the 7th and the 6th century, far after Solomon. Far after Solomon. So if you read a commentary and they're telling you that, and they do the same thing with Genesis, they say that Moses was ripping off the Babylonian account of creation or the flood or all these other things. And it's just, liberals have nothing better to do than to criticize the Bible and claim that God couldn't have written it and there probably isn't a God anyway. And it's just, they're horrible. So, now you've been exposed to Amen Opie. And uh, you can be just as unimpressed as I am unimpressed with Amen Opie. Notice, the latest time indication of Proverbs is Hezekiah's day. We read that already in, in uh, 25.1. That these also were the Sol uh, Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. And so this is how it got placed in the canon, during Hezekiah's day, not during Solomon's day. All right, well, that's probably enough on that. If there's uh, additional benefit there, Yeah, the fact that, some, that there's 30 sayings and that Amen Opie had 30 chapters is just uh, a coincidence as far as I'm concerned. All right, any questions on that? Do you care about any of this? I think it's interesting. I think it's useful. Um, at least be aware that it exists so that if somebody throws it in your face, you can say, oh yeah, I heard of that. My pastor talked about that. And uh, it's, it's not just hitting you from left field like I have no, no idea or this even was a thing. Okay. All right. Well, we will uh, let's just introduce those sayings. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, that they may be ready on your lips. So the author here has a reason why he's putting this on paper and he wants his readers to, uh, to read them. So that your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today, even you 
Have I not written to you excellent things of counsel and knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may correctly answer him who sent you? Now, I've got a theory. I can't prove this, but I've got a theory. Okay, you ready for my theory? And then I'll pray and you guys can go. Here's my theory. Just as I believe chapters 1 through 9 was David and Bathsheba pouring out their heart to Solomon, and that Solomon recorded everything they taught him, put it in written form, and, and that's our first nine chapters of Proverbs. Okay? I think this section, the sayings of the wise, and this particularly this paragraph, is Solomon to Rehoboam. Solomon at the end of his life is giving Rehoboam what he needs to be a wise king. And unfortunately, Rehoboam will listen to any of it. Rehoboam's a knucklehead. Okay? But here's the... That again, it, it, there's a teacher, there's a recipient, and somebody that knows that they're going to be accountable, that you may correctly answer him who sent you. Any, any king has to know that he's only in office because God put him there. And that he's accountable to God for how he reigns. Solomon was so humble and so fearful at the beginning of his reign. He knew he would never be a king like his father David. He knew that he needed wisdom. That's why he prayed for wisdom. He didn't pray for wealth or, or women or whatever else. And when I read this paragraph, when I read these verses here from 17 down through 21, it just strikes me that it would be, it would be it's conceivable in my mind, if not likely, that this is Solomon himself that put a collection together that has a private, that has a private library that he's giving to, he's blessing Rehoboam with at the end of his life. And then gets put in the canyon. But anyway, that, be that as it may. We'll come back to this. We've got a two-week break. We'll come back to this uh, three weeks from today. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the book of Proverbs. Thank you for the blessing we have to assemble together. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.